KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hey now, welcome to Flashpoint. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and this week's episode focuses on education as it pertains to black and brown Americans. This week's newsmaker is the third poet laureate of the city who also uses spoken word poetry to focus on her experience of being a black woman in America. Within blackness, poetry takes all of these different shapes of telling our story, but also giving people a way to get free. Then we have a conversation about critical race theory. I don't know what we will be teaching or reading if we're never made to challenge our comfortableness. Plus, of course, as always, we have our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. That's all ahead on this week's edition of Flashpoint from KYW News Radio. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and this week's episode is focused on education, but not in the traditional sense of simply teachers, but what is being taught and how it is getting out there. And this week's newsmaker is Yolanda Wisher. She was the third poet laureate of the city of Philadelphia, but she's also an educator who uses spoken word poetry to focus on her experience as a black woman in America and draws on the collective black experience as black Philadelphians. KYW Sherrod A. Howard spoke with her this week. Race, politics, and the combination of the two have historically been at the very least a conversation starter in Philadelphia, a city where the arts often influence political perspectives, just as Yolanda Wisher, Philly's 2016 Poet Laureate, believes should happen because she says Philadelphia is uniquely gifted with the voices of so many black poets. Yolanda, thank you for being here. Now, you say your blackness informs your poetry. I would say blackness is is the air that I breathe. It's it's the atmosphere that my work draws from. Yeah, I remember I remember the very first day that I became the Poet Laureate, I read the comments section, which you should never do. And there were so many racist comments about the Poet Laureate post in Philadelphia. Kind of leveled at me and also Sonia Sanchez, who was the first. And there had only been two Black women Poet Laureates at that time. But these people were so pissed enraged and somehow thinking that these Black women in the city of Philadelphia had gotten over or gotten the position that they didn't deserve. And I thought, wow, that's interesting because this position doesn't pay very much. It's very much a position of service and of giving back. So I had to really immediately create a plan for how I was going to step out with that kind of energy being out there, as well as all of the really inspiring, warm and welcoming energy that was around my appointment. And so it made me think about how very important it is to be a Black woman poet, to claim that that space as a wordsmith, to claim that space as a representative of Philadelphia. The average Philadelphian may look like somebody like me as a black or brown woman of my age, but how much of a voice do they have in the workings of this city? How much does the history of the city really tell our story? And this work you do, you say it's special, it's spiritual, academic, but there's something else to it. I don't know. I think this work, the work of being Poet poet Laureate is just a continuation of the work that people were doing here during the Underground Railroad times in Philadelphia, during the Civil Rights Movement. You know, um, there's still a way in which we are trying to claim our voice and, and say that our voice is the voice of Philadelphia. 
Now, you mentioned service, and this position is so much about service. How did you incorporate your ability to teach and to also be generous with your blackness, to be generous with who you are, educate, and pass that along from that perspective? It's not a new idea, you know? It's it's what Sonia did. It's what June Jordan did. It's what Jean Cortez did. There are a lot of Black women poets who said, I'm not just going to write. I'm going to take my writing out into the world. I'm going to share it with folks. I'm going to pull out the writing that's inside of them that hasn't necessarily been shared. It's an act of love to go into the schools, you know, the Philadelphia public schools, where sometimes there isn't a lot of hope, um, where there isn't a lot of room to be creative and to be free. Um, It's about using poetry as a, a kind of liberatory technology, it's a way, like blackness, is a survival technology. And within blackness, poetry takes all of these different shapes of telling our story, but also giving people a way to get free. And so that for me was the work of like, how can I use this gospel of poetry to offer people what this did for me as a little girl? You know, growing up in an abusive household, not knowing if anybody cared what was going on inside my my family's story, but having a way, poetry was my way out. It was a way for me to get access to other spaces of growth. I want Philadelphia young people to have that access. And poetry is just one way. I mean, art is really multi-prism the way that you can get free. And poetry is just, you know, one arm of that, that I know really well and that I've made it my business to to share. And kids, I mean, you're explaining poetry to children. This is a complicated medium for a young mind, but somehow you make it work. Somehow you get through. Yeah, I'm always in search of the universal poetry prompt that's just going to open anybody up. That's not going to be like too scary. Like, what are you asking me to reveal my whole life? Nah, not, nah. Just a little piece of your life that might open up a door inside of you. I'm less interested in the door opening up to me or the rest of the world. I'm mostly interested in how I can create that prompt that opens up this interior space inside of somebody that stays open way beyond the moment of my interaction with them. Um, It's a door that that becomes open that they can't close. You know, they got to figure out, oh, is it poetry that's going to keep this door open? Maybe I need to go pick up that instrument I've been dying to play. It's just a gateway into the creative expression that we all need to feel whole. And it's amazing how in school we're taught so much about poetry that's oppressive, that's stifling. It's not even kind of described as ours or something we could possess individually. It's just something that, you know, some old white men from a whole different continent and time and space upheld as important to civilization. But how is it of use to who we are right now? It's something I'm always trying to crack open. And what are some of the tools that you use to get in, to get in and through to those kids? I use everything to to get kids engaged. I use paint chips. I use spices. I, I bring in stuff for, you know, to just enliven your senses. Because I think when you start to have that embodiment of joy, of exploration, that's what really starts to change the way your cells work and your brain works. So what are you doing now to connect with the community? I think I'm always constantly mentoring and offering guidance and advice to younger poets, whether they're in school or they're, you know, former students of mine in their 20s or 30s. And they're trying to figure out how to live this poetry life in a way that is financially, you know, sustainable, but also personally meaningful. I'm curating events for Philadelphia Contemporary that 
I think, puts poetry on this citywide platform and invites a lot of different people to experience that that serendipity and that kind of surprise that those of us who are in the poetry scene and go to open mics pretty frequently know that feeling very well of just being kind of touched or struck by inspiration just in some little corner of Philadelphia. I'm trying to bring that little corner of Philadelphia into the larger population and groups so that people can experience that feeling and joy and, and commune together with their own stories and find authentic spaces to gather around. Poetry is an option. And I think as a Black child, my mom was a poet. I was mm. lucky to have that in my life. But then being immersed in Germantown, the Germantown poetry scene as a teenager, and then growing up with Sonia Sanchez and then seeing you. So poetry is also about more community. Yeah, it's when you mentioned this community of Germantown, I think about all of the Black women poets who live here. Sonia Sanchez, Ursula Rucker, Trapita Mason, and Zadi Keita. I could go on and on and on of, you know, folks who have local and national profiles. There's something about this place and its history. There's something so vibrant here that's extending out to the rest of the city. If not the world. If not the world. Let's recognize, like, hello, who's telling that story? Who's going to make that documentary? To me, that's a story that it's been really exciting to be a part of and just to be a witness to, but also now to be a steward of that story. And I want the world to know what this little sugar hill, I call it like my little brown sugar hill of Germantown, has kind of unleashed on the city and the world is, is a really beautiful thing. And I don't think we really like mind the depths of that influence in, in terms of the vibrancy of Philadelphia's artistic and cultural scene. And if you would, give us one line of your favorite poem and we'll go out on that. Won't you celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed? And that's from Lucille Clifton's poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me, which has become a mantra of mine. It's like we could recite this poem like we recite lines from The Color Purple. That struggle of joy and purpose that we walk as Black women poets. Thank you so much for being here and sharing with us, Yolanda. My pleasure. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and they're the three most fraught words in American education, critical race theory. It's a theoretical framework that challenges the way race and racism impact educational structures, practices, discourses, and it looks at how race has affected the development of this country. But unfortunately, these three words have become very controversial and has led to certain states attempting to ban it from being taught in schools, despite the fact that it is often not taught below the college level. Well, this week, we're welcoming in a Philadelphia teacher named Kristen Lubert, who wrote an op-ed piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer entitled, I'm a Philly teacher and I'm not scared of critical race theory. The honest history of this country is not something to be feared. She took time to join us for this special conversation on this week's episode of Flashpoint. Kristen, you wrote a very interesting op-ed in the Inquirer, basically refuting and saying flat out, quote, I'm not scared of critical race theory. So I will ask the simplest question. Why aren't you scared of critical race theory? I'm not scared of it. And, you know, to be, it says it in the column, but I'll repeat it again. I'm a white person. I'm a white woman. Obviously, I have that perspective of 
growing up as a white person in America, right? Uh, which is its own different experience. So I'm not afraid of it because I've always taught English and history. I've always taught in Philly, in the Philadelphia Public School District. So most of my students have always been um, African-American, Latinx, um, uh, some Asian students, but honestly, mostly I've taught uh, African-American and Latinx students. So I'm not afraid of critical race theory or teaching the truth because it is the truth and we can't be afraid of the truth. We have to use the truth to figure out where we went, how things happened in our history, what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and how we can do better in the future. And if we're not going to look at the truth, then what are we doing in education? You know, our children need to know the truth about the history of our country. And and our country has many wonderful things and many shameful and awful things that have been perpetrated in the name of America over the years. And we need to know the fullness of that history in order to make a future for for ourselves. And I, I believe our kids deserve that and need that. It's almost like gaslighting kids to say it wasn't that bad or these things didn't happen. They know it happened. Um, Our children are smart. They have their own family histories and oral histories that have been passed down for generations. And they know what happened in our country to various groups of people. So to just say it wasn't as bad as they think or they experienced or to say that it's fixed now is actually harmful. And it's harmful to white kids, too, honestly. The idea that it's, quote unquote, fixed now and therefore we don't have to talk about it anymore or it really wasn't that bad or we or or it's unpatriotic, I think, is the term that is often tossed around. Now, critical race theory is defined as defined as theoretical and analytical framework that looks at the way race and racism impact everything from educational structures and practices and discourses. And the thing is, it's not largely taught at a level lower than the college level or certain high school levels. That's absolutely true. So as you said in your intro, it's become this code word for teaching anything that might make someone sit in uncomfortability for a minute or five minutes or five hours, which is fine. It's good to be uncomfortable when you're getting educated. If you're not uncomfortable, then you're probably not being educated. So yeah, critical race theory was you know founded by Kimberly Crenshaw and other legal scholars to dissect the law to figure out what's happening with the law, even if some laws were not intended to be racist, but were racist in their application. And of course, some laws were explicitly in our country, explicitly racist. So we don't necessarily teach critical race theory, although it could be super interesting to do that in a high high level, you know, in a high school class with some of our students. But most of the history and English teachers I know do teach what the systemic oppression of especially black people in America, native people, many other groups, except for white European based groups have suffered in this country. And that, that is something that is real that we can look at many primary sources to verify, but critical race has become the, the bad word because we don't want people to sit in, in, in their uncomfortableness for, for a little bit to understand and to reckon with things. Now, as a teacher, what have you run into since this whole controversy over critical race theory has started? It's interesting because in my own teaching practice, I taught for many years in Fairmount in elementary school. I taught seventh and eighth grade. Our population was at that time mostly uh, black and brown students. I teach now in a school um, which is citywide admit, 
but it's a small school in North Philly. And we have almost exclusively minority students. So from parents and from my administrators, I haven't run into criticism. When I wrote the column and that was, you know, in the Inquirer, I did get some emails that I wouldn't say they were horrible, but they were definitely like, oh, you have to teach both sides. And, you know, our country is a glorious place. And, you know, you have to teach people to be proud of our country. And I always end up quoting James Baldwin many, many times. He said, I love America more than any other country in the world. Therefore, I you know, reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. So being critical and examining ideas that our country was founded on and saying, hey, I'm reading the Declaration of Independence. I'm reading the Constitution. But what I'm seeing is, did we really live up to those ideals? And interrogating that, I think, is helpful. But for my, my personal practice, I've been very fortunate Um, that I haven't run into a lot of pushback from the people that I teach or the parents of the people that I teach. It is interesting. I just heard you use the term both sides there. We just had an incident in Texas not that long ago where a Texas school board was told you have to offer an opposing viewpoint to the Holocaust, for example. That brings me to another point is this idea of you have to tell both sides as if somehow by explaining the honest history of this country, which involved slavery, which involved more than 100 years of legalized segregation in this country, that the point that my mother, a teacher herself for 40 years, was born during Jim Crow, where mm-hmm. my own grandfather couldn't go to certain restaurants, couldn't go to certain stores, was harassed for going to grass, uh, gas stations and things of that nature, to act as if somehow that is saying how much the country, how much you hate the country is weird. Help me understand this notion of, quote, both sides from a teacher's perspective? You know, Americans love heroes. I'll say that. So if we look at George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, right, people want to hold, and there's a mythology of America, like with every country, there's a mythology that we uphold. And when we start to interrogate the mythology, like George Washington's fighting for freedom from England because he believes the people in the colonies have been oppressed, at the same time, he's very intentionally not by accident, very intentionally making sure the the enslaved people under his purview don't stay in Pennsylvania too long because they would become free at that point in history if they stayed more than six months. So he's intentionally upholding the enslavement of people while he's also fighting for freedom, quote unquote, from someone telling you what to do all the time. So that is very interesting, right? And to not interrogate that, um, and, and also Thomas Jefferson's same situation with, with having many, many enslaved people and uh, everything that he enacted upon the people he had with him at Monticello and other places. So I don't know that you can both sides. I'm very clear when I teach my students that, that the enslavement of a people is wrong. I'm not going to both sides that and say, well, it was a different time. That's another argument people like to use. The times were different. And yes, that's true, but the times were not so different that there weren't people who were always fighting against the enslavement of people. There were people, both black and white and others, who were actively realizing that enslavement was wrong and that they were going to do everything they could to fight against it. So we can't use that, oh, it was the times. He was a man of his times. We hear that a lot. And But they still made choices that you know we can say I believe we can clearly say those choices were were evil or wrong choices. 
Does that mean he didn't do a good job as the general of, of the army and perhaps as president? Maybe it doesn't mean that, but it means he is a complex person and he did things that were not right or moral. And we have a right to interrogate that in our in our leaders and in our heroes. And one one final thing here was mentioned before. This is something that is not actually taught at elementary levels. It's not taught at junior high school levels. It might be taught at the upper reaches of maybe some of the better high schools in the country. You don't even see this till you get to college. What kind of slippery slope do we head down if the thought of being able to ban something from being taught in this country, where, what are we looking at if that even gets a true foothold where you can start banning books, banning lessons, banning teachers from saying certain things in classrooms despite the fact that they legitimately happen? It is very chilling because I, I'm aside from the both sides of Holocaust in Texas, I believe there was a perhaps in Virginia, a book of, of some, a list of some 300 books put out this week of that they want to ban one of them by, of course, Nobel Prize winning fabulous author, Toni Morrison, because they talk about uncomfortable topics. Uh, the topics in Beloved are certainly uncomfortable, but there's certainly things that happen to people in this country. So I don't know what we will be teaching or reading if we're never made to challenge an idea, challenge a person, or challenge um, our comfortableness. We need to live in that uncomfortableness and live in the possibility of making a better world, which is, as teachers, what we're trying to help our students do, to become educated, to, to help build that better world that they deserve, for sure, and we all need. So I think it's chilling that certain people want to ban certain things. I have a lot of hope because I believe that teachers will push back against it. I believe some parents will also push back. And I believe that the ideas and uh, the practice of being, you know, really looking at what we're learning and looking and reading about all of the things in the past will be maintained by most people. I think, I think we will, but it is a chilling time and we have to, you know, make our voices heard and parents who support their kids having a challenging learning experience need to support their teachers as well and maybe run for school boards around the country. Philadelphia does not yet have an elected school board, but most other places in Pennsylvania do and the other states. So I think the people who want a real true liberal education in the classical sense of the word liberal need to step up and say, I'm not afraid to have my kids learn that these things were perpetrated in the name of the United States in the name of freedom. And we have to change that. These things were wrong and we need to, to make our country a better place. We want to make sure we get to a point that we are actually teaching history and not propaganda. And it's exactly. And it's, I mean, you look at the way we teach Dr. King or the way some people teach Dr. King, no one, you know, we're going to pull one line out of the speech from the March on Washington for jobs and justice, which is the whole name of that march, right? And we're going to concentrate on the dream part instead of all of the other things he said in that speech, which spoke to taking care of poor people, which spoke to how people have treated uh, black people over the years in this country. So we sanitize, you know, our our heroes, uh, both black and white, because Dr. King was truly at the end of his life uh, very had very radical views about. Uh, poverty, about the war in Vietnam, and about many other things. And we don't often, you know, we say, and he was not a popular person at that time in history. 
And, and we forget to teach some people forget to teach that, you know, he had his struggles of speaking truth to power and not being loved for it. You know, he's loved after he was assassinated and murdered, you know, years, 50, 60 years after that happened. But at the time, you know, his practice was radical and his ideas were radical and he was trying to take the country in a direction that we still need to go. So, yes, we need to teach the fullness of people and not just the heroic you know, sanitized uh, George Washington or Jefferson or even Dr. King. This is the type of thing that even not dealing with, quote, critical race theory, just dealing with the teaching of history. can You can learn so much from this. Kristen Lubert, thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee, and every week we like to highlight someone who's making a difference in our communities. This week's changemaker is Ron Curtis. He's the owner of Final Touch Barber Academy at 9th and Spring Garden. The school is a dream come true for him and for the many others that he teaches. For Ron Curtis, cutting hair was a way out of trouble and a pathway to opportunities. When Curtis was serving a four-year sentence behind bars, he imagined turning his life around. I, mean, I was just basically saying, how can I just change my life and not go back to jail ever again in my life? So I became the barber and I just started cutting hair and teaching people how to cut hair and there. And um, I just told myself, when I get out of here, you know, I'm going to change my life around. And he did just that. And now he's helping other young people keep their lives on track through the craft of cutting hair. It's a lot of crazy stuff going on here in this world um so when you look at people trying to cut hair and you you know you want to become barbers you give them your all there's a lot you know what i mean you gotta keep this guy off the street you gotta tell him right from wrong you gotta let him know your past you gotta let him know that there's a brighter future out here for these kids and um people in in, in this industry just not here anywhere you know what i mean barbers are leaders and, and they are a pillar of the community and they have to continue to teach these young men how to be grown men about something. 23-year-old Julian Starshia from Southwest Philly has been a student at the academy for seven months. Here and having teachers that's just like pushing me to do right, you know, definitely made me better. The school in general, uh, the school was something I needed. I work and go to school. I work during the day and I go to school at night. And that's a lot. At the end of the day, I'm glad I was here because I'm not in the street. Another day that God gave me to continue to be on this path and to continue my quest, you know, to success. Dewan Allen from Germantown has also been learning for seven months. He says the work gives him an outlet for creativity and a sense of pride and purpose. To me, it's, uh, it's like art. I like art, so it's like when you're in a barbershop, it's like you basically putting a new style on the client and make them happy and stuff like that. So, And Curtis says that's exactly what his mission is, to help as many young people as he can, keeping them off the streets and empowering their lives through barbery. We got 20-year-old kids in here right now, and you know what they say? They don't want to get out there and die. You know, every time you look at them and they're getting better and better, um, they're here every day. Um, they want to save their life, you know, from what's going on out here. 
when I look at them and I see how far they have, you know, become and seeing what they're doing, you know, it just makes you so happy, man, because you see these young kids that, that want it. You can find out more about Final Touch Barber Academy on their website, finaltouchbarberacademy.com. They're also on Instagram. As always, if you know a changemaker we should highlight next, let us know. You can tweet me at AR Lee on air. And there you have it. Another episode of Flashpoint is in the books. We want to thank you, as always, for supporting the show. And remember, the podcast version of this show will be showing up on the Odyssey app real soon. It's on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can hear Flashpoint every week, Saturday nights at 9.30 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KYW News Radio, as well as on the Odyssey app. So for Sheridan Howard, Antoinette Lee, and as always, our super producer, Ariane Fulcher, I'm Jay Scott Smith telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. And yes, we've checked. And sorry, hope it's still not a strategy. We'll see you next week. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.